Welcome to the Evolution of Business podcast. Business is a series of evolutions. This podcast explores how to stay relevant in the hearts and minds of the people you choose to serve. It will look for the lessons and the failures of the past and share the success of those getting it right today. What is the next evolution of your business? Now, here's your host, Dave Clare. Welcome to another episode of the Evolution of Business show. As always, I'm your host, Dave Clare. And today, we have a very, very special guest, somebody who I've been following for five or six years, actually, who I've finally been able to get on the Evolution of Business show. So I'm very excited uh, to have a, a really deep and uh, powerful talk, actually, with Lisa Messenger. Uh, Lisa is the vibrant, game-changing CEO of the Messenger Group as well as founder and editor-in-chief of The Collective Hub, which is a multi-platform entrepreneurial lifestyle destination with a mandate to disrupt, challenge, and inspire. And you can see why I'm so excited about talking with Lisa when you use words like that. Lisa launched The Collective Hub as a print magazine back in 2013 with no experience in an industry that people said was dead or dying. So that would be fascinating to learn more about that journey. Collective Hub has since grown into an international multimedia business and lifestyle platform with multiple verticals across print, digital events, and education, all of which are designed to serve to ignite the human potential. Now, fascinatingly, five years and 52 issues into the print magazine, Lisa made a courageous move to break the very thing that she started, the print magazine enabling her to take some time and space to evolve into the next iteration and again disrupt. Lisa is an international speaker, a best-selling author, and an authority on disruption in both corporate sector and the startup scene. Lisa's experience in publishing has seen her produce over 400 custom published books for companies and individuals, as well as having authored and co-authored 24 herself. I'm a little bit behind with just five. Uh, so with fans including Sir Richard Branson, and New York Times bestselling author Bradley Trevor Grieve and myself and a loyal fan base, Lisa's vision is to build a community of like-minded people who want to change the world. I couldn't think of a better thing to do, nor a better guest for the Evolution of Business show. Welcome, Lisa Messenger. Dave, thank you so much for having me. It's really beautiful. And we were chatting just before you read that bio. Thank you. And yeah, thank you so much for following and supporting my journey for such a long time. I didn't realize that. So yes, I'm very grateful to be here. I'm one of the secret fans who've been hiding in the background. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, we're, we're talking that um, it's, it's really awesome. One of the things with the, with the Evolution of Business show, which I, I struggled in season one, was was actually getting a lot more women entrepreneurs and leaders to actually get on the podcast. And so for season two, I've certainly made an effort to reach out to as many uh, female entrepreneurs, but, uh, you know, because I have a passion in that space as a, I don't know, you, you might know Joe Burston from Inspiring Rare Birds. I but, do. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I was the very first male mentor for Inspiring Rare Birds. Ah. And now about 40% of the, the um, mentors are men, and which is really exciting for me. And that was when I was sharing with you the story about my daughter and her looking for, you know, female entrepreneurs to be inspired by. And once again, it was as a small number for her at 16 years of age to, to think about. I mean, there's so many amazing women doing amazing things out there, but that's when I found you. Um, when I was looking for people that I could point her in the direction and say, look at things that these people are doing. Uh, yeah, and a so, big yeah. shout out to your daughter who I've just followed on Instagram. Well yes. done to her. I think it's very, very inspiring what she's doing at such a young age. Yeah, yeah, and it's, uh, but it's awesome. But so. So that, that's, I guess, how we uh, got there. But then finally getting you to have you come on the show here and, and share your story with us. Uh, so please, Lisa, tell us the Lisa Messenger journey. Um, <laughs> as, any highlights, lowlights, whatever? Because you know one thing actually before you started, I found fascinating about looking at your history and that is you have no hesitation being vulnerable and sharing your actual real life journey of the, the challenges that you've gone through, you know, the highs and the lows. Um, which I think is so amazing. Uh, and I wish more people would be willing to, you know, show that the humanity, the human nature of actually, you know, life uh, as yeah. we evolve in business. It's amazing what you've shared. Thank you. Well, I think, you know what, it's something that I made my personal mandate and mission to kind of be a conduit and, you know, live 
a large life pushing myself every single day and then you know learn as I go and then share the lessons learned so that's something that I've really made my mission because I feel like it's when we actually share we lift each other higher and we become relatable and attainable rather than just this glossy Instagram image so this morning I don't know if you're using the video but I've just been for a big soft sand run and I've been in the water so I'm looking a little bedraggled, but, but this is real life, right? So yeah, absolutely. It's good. Okay, so I'll I will give you the you want the 10 minute version? Yeah, 10, 10 take 10, 15, whatever you need. I'll cut okay. you off if you start going too long. Yeah, okay. All right, let's go. Whew, my whole life in 10 minutes. Let's do this. So from a business perspective, I think probably the most important thing is um, I started my first business on the 22nd of October, 2001. So that is just over, what are we, 19, 19 years, years ago? ago. Yeah. yeah. So I've had businesses for a long time. I think probably one of the most important aspects of that for anyone listening to or watching this is that I would say for the first 11, almost 12 years of that journey, I overserviced, undercharged, was everything to everyone, didn't have sort of systems and processes, only ever had three staff, like full-time staff members, and couldn't really work out how to scale. So what happened was prior to starting my business in 2001, I'd worked for a little while in conference and event management. And what I loved about that was you know you you start off doing things that you really don't end up doing necessarily but every little thing in hindsight makes perfect sense when it's all kind of mushed together over the years so the aspect that i loved of conference and event management was not the detail because i'm not a very detail orientated implementer <laughs> um, what i loved was the sponsorship aspect so actually um looking at what's what am i you know what am i selling here what's the property what's the asset and then you know how can i attract corporate sponsorship to sell against you know hospitality branding whatever it happens to be so from conference and event management i moved into sponsorship so i ended up for only eight months selling sponsorship for Cirque du Soleil, um, The Wiggles, wow. Barry Humphreys. so i had some incredible clients and that eight months so that was beginning of 2001 until I started my business was probably the most formative, you know, of anything I'd ever done because I had an extraordinary boss who really believed in me. And I learned to think differently about, and I truly believe this and I'll talk more about it as we go. Yeah. Anyone has a tangible asset that they can sell against and we can dig a lot more into that. So 2001, I launched, um, kind of as a integrated marketing agency, I do that with, you know, very inverted commas because I didn't really have a lot of marketing experience, but as so many startups are, I was kind of bright eyed and bushy tailed and just so excited to go out on my own. And I had like $4,000 to my name, but I think I was on like a $64,000 salary or something. So at the time I had nothing to lose, right? Yeah. So I just jumped in and yeah, and I started attracting these clients. But as I said, it wasn't a sustainable or clever way to run a business because someone would come to me and say, hey, can I do it? Can you do a business plan for me? Or can you help me market this thing? Or can you help me with some branding? And I was just like, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Terrible way to run a business because I was reinventing the wheel every single time. And, you know, it was really I was swapping time for money. So mm. it continued on that journey for a while. 2004. I was actually extraordinarily unhappy and I'll just segue for a moment into my personal life. I was drinking too much, um, had no semblance of really who I was, had alienated my family. So whilst I was excited about business and on the outs, from the outside looking in, I looked like I had it all together. I've always been pretty excited and optimistic, but actually inside I was kind of dying. I was feeling pretty horrible at that point. And, um, and so I actually decided to write a book um as you do <laughs> and there was and so i wrote a book called happiness is and my first um my foray into publishing was literally uh, i think a one-day publishing workshop and a one-day self-publishing workshop and i suddenly realized and i mean this is a long story i won't go into it but the publishing traditional publishing journey would take me you know I don't know, maybe one in 4,000 unsolicited manuscripts actually get turned into a book. I don't know what journey you've done. Yeah. And I, you know, I had no experience. And so I thought, wow, how can I apply 
my sponsorship experience to producing a book. So actually, because I was unbelievably unhappy, I went around Australia asking people, what makes you happy? And I compiled this book and I, I self-published it. But what I did was I utilized my sponsorship experience and I um, approached people like Mercedes-Benz. So they actually bought a whole lot of copies to incentivize test drive. So test drive a Mercedes, get a copy of Happiness Is. I saw that Clinique had a perfume called Happy Hearts and I was like, so they bought like 2000 copies um, and as a gift with purchase. Um, I got a catalog one day from Officeworks and they were giving away yoga mats, spend $200 and get a yoga mat. And I was like, do you wanna buy this book Happiness Is? They bought 10,000 copies. So I actually sold 36,000 copies of that book. I think within the first 12 months, purely by doing corporate deals. So my point here in business is sometimes things accidentally on purpose happen when you use a specific accidentally on purpose <laughs> <laughs> and apply it you, you know so I tapped into a skill set that I had and I applied it in a completely different way and I just thought laterally and that's really what I've always done so what happened was that book attracted a lot of media attention and so a lot of thought leaders started approaching me and saying oh my god this is amazing because I was probably almost the first person in Australia to do what's called special sales in the US and probably Canada, where mm -hmm. people do bulk sales. And that's what I'd achieved yeah. quite well. So I then proceeded to, for the next 10 years, produce books for other people, books as marketing tools for a whole lot of brands from Toby's Estate to Commonwealth Bank, you name it. <laughs> and wow. so that's where the 400 books came in. Um, and I continue to write books myself. And what's interesting about that is at school, I did what was unceremoniously called veggie English for the dumbest of the dumb, people who couldn't write or, you know, do anything. And here I was, and this is an interesting point, you know, Dave, you're probably like a very fabulous author who actually, you know, has the expertise to write about things. Whereas I was like, I would put myself as a guinea pig. So I wrote a series of learn to surf books. I wrote a series of property investing books. So I've always come up with a topic and yeah. then I've gone, I'm going to learn this and I'm going to write it in real time as I do it. And that's what I've done with all my books. Fast forward to 2012, I was comfortable. I was actually, even though I hadn't worked out how to scale, I was making a lot, I was making really good money and I'd invested in a lot of property and I was living a really great life. I gave up drinking in 2004. So, you know, things had really turned around. I made a very conscious decision to live my life fully. But books were quite one-dimensional for me. Like I just knew how to do it. I, I would get an author, you know, and do help them with the ghostwrite, edit, proofread, design, print, boom. And it became a bit mechanical for me. And so 2012, I was like, right, I want to, you know, turbocharge this. I want to bring all these incredible thought leaders that I know, you know, around the world, entrepreneurs, and I want to create a magazine so that they can all be in one place together together. Um, and, you know, and it will be the story behind the story. So not just isn't Dave amazing, but how did Dave do it? Why did Dave do it? What's his supply chain? How did he fund it? You know, all the pieces that we don't often talk about in business. Yeah. Um, and the and I'll almost finish. The interesting thing about that is that I'd never worked in magazines. I'd never worked in the media. I had publishing experience, but as I said, quite one dimensional in comparison. Mm. And I launched this magazine, Collective Hub, March 2013. And what's interesting about that is it was a highly saturated market. So over five and a half thousand print mags in Australia alone. Wow. People said print was dead or dying and I had no experience. So, but within the <laughs> 37, but within 37, uh, within 18 months, that print magazine was in 37 countries. So, um, and then we can go into what happened as a result yeah. and why that actually worked. But that's a very, um, smoosh down version of to there and then yeah. probably the journey gets quite interesting and large from 2013 onwards so so don't stop now <laughs> oh okay <laughs> it was like well that was seemed quite long no um, no no this is fascinating <laughs> so why that worked and i've written uh i've written 10 books and playbooks since 2013 again in real time just sharing that entire journey um, is that I really believe very much in a sense of purpose. And I just had this hunger and this undeniable sense of purpose in 2012. Like I'm kind of bored, I'm comfortable, I want to push myself, I want to blow the roof off this now. And my whole purpose was 
I want to give voice to entrepreneurs and business people and I want to tell the story behind the story in a way that no media outlet to my knowledge to date has or had done. And the other side of it was that I wanted to educate and inspire people and let them know that actually this is the story behind the story. You know, business is hard, but also all the things that people wouldn't talk about because I was always left scratching my head. But how, but how, but why, but why? How did Dave do that? Like, how did he fund that thing? What's the supply chain? Where did he get the thing made? Like, how's his cash flow? And so that's, um, that's why I started it. And I think part of it was that, uh, I did things very, very differently. So again, coming back to my sponsorship days, mm. I looked at really if there's more currencies than cash. That was really my overarching thing, really important. And I think this is important for anyone listening to this. It's like, I didn't have the money that the big boys had. I didn't have the experience. I, I didn't have a whole lot of things, right? Yeah. But what I did have was I just literally thought, okay, what do I have? So whilst and people will listen to the similarities, not the differences for your business, but this is an interesting case study. The, the revenue for magazines at the time was that people were essentially selling a flat ad on a page. So they'd say sell an ad for $10,000. Now the first issue of the magazine cost me 350 grand. So I would have had to sell 35 ads before I launched just to cover the cost, right? Wow. So I had to think bigger. So this is where I utilized my sponsorship experience. And this is eight months out from the launch of my magazine. I thought, and this is so important, what are my physical tangible assets that I can sell against? So I started thinking, I'm going to have a print magazine. So I'll be able to do editorial, advertorial, advertising. I can speak. I'll be able to do some speaking gigs. Um, you know, I'll have physical copies of the magazine that I can give someone. So the first deal I did was actually for $200,000, right? So this is kind of like, I still don't think anyone to this day has ever done a deal. And it kind of went down a little bit in history in terms of media, because I just thought I need to like turbocharge this thing. I don't have time to sit around. And by the way, no one would have paid 10 grand for a flat ad on a page to a magazine that didn't yet exist in mm. an industry that was dead or dying to someone who had no experience. So I probably would have had to sell it at like <laughs> recipe for 5,000. Yeah, I would have probably had to sell it at $5,000, which meant selling 70 ads before I launched to cover, you know, to break even. So the deal I did with Commonwealth Bank was give me 200 grand. By the way, I've never borrowed a cent in business. I have for property. So yeah. Commonwealth Bank gave me money to underwrite you know, it's some of the, the first issue. And yeah. it basically looked like the combination of different tools that I just talked about, you know, advertising, editorial copies of the magazine, me doing speaking gigs, me creating content for them, and a whole lot of stuff that I did have. So when anyone ever says to me, I can't start a business, I have no money, I don't know yeah. what I'm doing, I call big fat BS on that because yeah. I've done it. And Matthew yeah. Stanton was the CEO of Bauer at the time. They had 80 magazines in their stable. You know, it was very successful at the time. They've since had a few um, name changes, et cetera, et cetera. But he would sit me down, you know, and have breakfast with me every three months or so. And he'd just shake his head and go, how are you doing this? And the thing is, I just started looking at, you know, some deals were cash, but others were not. So, for example, I did some deals with zero early on. And rather than think about advertising and dollars, I thought about what have you got with, they had a database of say 800,000 people. Okay, can you carry the message for me? Tell everyone about Collective Hub and in exchange, you know, I'll create content, I'll do this for you. So that's where I think it's really important to tap into like-minded non-competing partners who share similar mm. audience profiles and they become channel partners and I think as a startup that's a way to kind of catapult yourself forward very very quickly without having to spend marketing dollars that you probably don't have so I just did deal after deal after deal who are the like-minded non-competing partners I literally went through A to Z automotive airlines accommodation and yeah. and then thought about right who actually within those um, industry categories could I partner with to like you know put the message out there and so we grew and we grew fast and I did um, crazy deals like I looked at, you know, from a distribution perspective, and this is why it takes tenacity and resilience and guts. Um, I looked at Newslink, so every single airport and I was like, okay, I need to be a Newslink. And finally, I got this meeting with Shane, who was the head of Newslink. <laughs> I didn't realize how hard, I'm laughing because I didn't realize how hard it was to get a meeting and I got one because I was persistent. Yeah. <laughs> and then he said something like, 
I can't remember the exact figure, but it was something like it's going to be $4,000 per store to be ranged within Newsland. And I was like, Shane, I don't have any money. Like, And he just shook his head and I said to him, Shane, I will guarantee you profit. Like you back me and I will guarantee you profit. Anyway, this is the wow. thing when we're in startup mode, right? And he said, Lisa, I've never heard anything so ridiculous. I've never heard someone back themselves so hard. And so he ranged me and I ended up having floor to ceiling light walls in every single airport. Matthew Stanton called me and he's like, how are you doing this? You've taken all our real estate. <laughs> so, you know, I say, and this is not my quote, but it's not the fast, um, it's not the big who eat the, what is it? It's not the, <laughs> I've forgotten, I haven't said it for a while. It's not the, anyway, it's fast and slow, big and small. It's basically, yeah. you know, it's the people who are nimble, flexible, that can go fast. And I think yep. that's the beauty of startups, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And it kept wow. growing. <laughs> oh, like I've got to, I'm going to touch base on a couple. I've got. There's a lot in there. I, I got like 15 points already written down. <laughs> <laughs> My point around it is: before we get into your questions, like I truly believe anything is possible when you think hmm. differently and you realize that there's deals to be done and you re remove cash as the only currency. And literally within 18 months, 37 countries, and one day an email which just in the subject line had from the office of Anna Wintour. And um, she's like the global doyen of publishing, like, you know, editor of Vogue, um, you know, wow. one of the heads of Condé Nast. And she invited me to go to New York and meet with her. And like literally 18 months before, no one knew my name. I didn't even have a product. Um, and the, the head of publishing really globally, I think Devil Wears Prada, the September issue, she's inviting me to go and have a serious business meeting with her, you know, and, Richard Branson wow. invited me to his private island, blah, blah. We can unpack all of that. Yeah, well, just... pretty freaking wild. <laughs> so, yeah, like, uh, I'm trying to remember, was it Glenn Close or Meryl Streep who was the Devil Wears Prada? Was it? Uh... Oh, yeah, it, I think it was, it was Meryl Streep, yeah. yeah. You got to meet Meryl Streep? What? The, uh... <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so, and I'm fascinated about the whole Richard Branson thing, uh, certainly to talk about. But a couple of things that came up that I thought was really um one of the things that really resonated with me was you said mentioned ago you had a boss that believed in you uh and i i speak of in my book simplified actually one of my leadership journey was uh one of my very first mentors outside of my parents my mom and my dad was actually a guy named john mcginnis and he saw something in me that i didn't see in myself and, and you know and i think that's so important when you in and that's i guess where for myself uh, passionate about doing mentoring and everything like because it was such a big influence on my life, finding somebody else who actually believed in me more than I actually believed in myself, perhaps at the time. Mm. And it's really important to, to be that person for other people at, because sometimes we need to borrow belief. 100%. Yeah. And, and so I thought that was really, really powerful. Um, and, you know, I love the you know, nothing to lose. So just jump in. Yeah. You know, where some people say, but but 64 grand a year, it's a lot. And you know, there'll be all the rationalizing all why the reasons why they can or can't, um, you know, and then they'll be sitting there still on 64K, which is nothing wrong with that, um, you know, 20, 30 years later, but going, geez, I wish I'd jumped in. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So maybe I just unpack quickly those two yeah. points. Please so go the, ahead. Bo yeah. the boss thing is interesting. Um, that was a, a guy called Adam Jeffrey. And the interesting thing about that is, I mean, I was a complete pain in the ass employee, I think, you know, like, because I used, to say to him, I used to say to him all the time, I want equity. Like, I don't even know that I knew what that meant, but I always wanted to lead. And, you know, he kind of almost fired me, but in the most beautiful way. Like he literally said, Lisa, I think you should go out on your own and do this. And he actually encouraged me to set up a sponsorship agency, which essentially would, was in competition. And not only that, he actually said to me, come back in tomorrow and kind of take what you want. Like he was just so generous and I really appreciate yeah. that. So he gave me kind of my wings. And the second thing is that, you know, so many people who want to start a business are often like, oh, I, I don't want to jump because I'm on a, an, you know, often a much bigger salary than I was at the time. I mean, I was young, but the thing is, you know, we can start a side hustle. We can start to yeah. test things on the side, start to do a blog, start to with a, you know, minimum order quantity of something or a minimal viable product and just like to start to think, do I have something tangible? Is there some commercial reality before you jump in holus bolus and, you know, yeah, yeah. entrepreneurial journey? <laughs> yeah, the old uh, jump off the cliff and build the wings on the way down. Yes. 
but you better have an idea about the plane while you're before you make the jump. I think maybe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, one of the other things I really loved uh, um, was, and and I, I experienced this early as uh, I've been in and out of entrepreneurship, and also have my business, which is very successful today. But I remember the early days as well when you talk about being uh, you were over servicing, undercharging, not able to scale. I think a lot of uh, entrepreneurs or people getting business. Uh, that's probably something that comes or just happens uh, there. You, you just, you want to over-service because you don't want to lose what you have. Mm. Um, and then you you don't value what you have to offer as much as you should. Um, and those are probably the things that actually stop you from scaling and lack of systems and processes and uh, and things like that. I just, I was just resonating with that. Like, oh God, I remember those days when uh, an yeah. actual buddy of mine says, Dave, you offer way too much value and you don't charge enough. So, I'm going to unpack that quickly as well, if that's okay. So what yeah, I remember sitting it's about with, you, not me. So it's all right. <laughs> oh well, I, I just if it's useful for people, I remember sitting with two people who were kind of mentors to me at the time, two guys, and I remember them saying to me, "What? I don't understand your business because you're really just swapping time for money, right? Because yeah. I was literally just yeah. it was just me, and I was you know changing it up for every single client, and that's when such a simple conversation from mentors, yeah. and I suddenly thought." Gosh, you're right. Like you need to create something once and then leverage it multiple times. People are not paying for your hour of your time. They're paying for your experience, your intellectual right. property, the tools that you've developed to mm. actually support them. And, and that's when I started getting really clear. And then I was like, if people want to buy my time, I'm going to put a premium cost on that. Right. And, you know, rather than my least favorite saying on the planet is I want to pick your brains over a coffee. I can't stand it. If anyone ever says that to me, I'm going to run a mile. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I started charging a premium. I was like, if you want me, you, you pay a lot. Or there is a value exchange that is non-monetary, but we have an equal exchange of some type. So I got really clear on that. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that that's really important. And you know, I'm I'm with you with that. Like the that cup of coffee is going to cost you a thousand dollars. Yeah, there's <laughs> no such freaking thing as picking my brains over a coffee anymore. Like it's just yeah. it's you think not my cool brain if you think my brain's worth four dollars fifty or whatever it might be for a coffee, then I'm probably the wrong brain to pick because yeah. the, <laughs> like you know that's what I think with people that for four bucks fifty like. I'll give you the $4.50 answer. You don't even have to take me for coffee if you like. I love that. Dave, I'm going to use that. It's so good. <laughs> it's like, yeah. But but and, and then this becomes a, a one, I call it a one-way energy exchange where, and yeah. everyone listening will relate. You go for that coffee and you feel like completely depleted. It's like everything's been sucked out of you. I walk away feeling resentful, mm. used, you know, that's yeah. an hour I'm never going to get back. So I just decided not not doing that anymore. You pay for what you get. So yeah, yeah. absolutely. You know, and the funny thing, I guess, even in today's world, and, and advice to anybody who's looking to get someone like your experience uh, and, and like to, to leverage your experience, is they should be thinking about what value they can give to you first, not what value they can extract from you first. One hundred percent. And we can talk about the Richard Branson thing, and I can give you very good examples about that when you Beautiful. want. Um, the last thing from the the really. I thought it was one of the most powerful things that you shared with us, which I hope a whole bunch of people realize. And I've had this uh, conversation with a lot of clients and, and young, young entrepreneurs is there's more currency than just cash. And I just thought that's so powerful. When you look at, um, you know, I've, I've even challenged some people. I, I, I do a young, there's a young fellow I mentor and we do it live on LinkedIn every Wednesday at one o'clock. And, uh, you know, I challenged one of the things was, what if you had no money to spend on marketing or you had no money to spend? How would you go out or you couldn't use social media anymore? You couldn't use, there's no social media. You have no money to spend. How would you go out and market or promote your business and the value that you bring to the world? Oh, that is the best. I, I do a lot of corporate speaking and I, yeah. I headed a, a marketing, a big marketing conference for a pet food company recently. And on day one, they had three days together and I was the opening speaker. And I said to them exactly this. I said, right. You have no money. You yep. remove all money. Because I think this is the problem, right? You got comfortable. They've got millions and millions of dollars to spend. And I think the beauty of startups and entrepreneurs is we are forced to think laterally. We're forced to think differently because we don't have the luxury of money. So you've got to think, how can we do things differently? Yeah. And it's uncomfortable for people who are used to big marketing budgets. But I'm like, you'll do some of your most genius creative work if you remove the money aspect. And Correct. you think, how can I start trading other things? So, yeah. Yeah, and that to me, I think that's such a powerful thing. So you've got to think that there's more uh, currency than just cash. And the easy way to do that is say, I have no cash. Now what would I do? How would I do it? Yeah. 
and I've uh, written a whole book called Money and Mindfulness, which is oh really <laughs> <laughs> plug there, so right, which is great. So check out that book, <laughs> Money and Mindfulness. Uh, okay, so obviously this is the evolution of business show, um, and one of the reasons why, like I'm, uh, I'll call myself the voice of evolution, if you wish, that I really believe that evolution should be the natural state of business. Um, and that, you know, every business has a series of evolutions, you know, what your business was three years ago is not what it is today when it won't be what it'll be in three years time from now. So business is always in a series of evolution and based on Darwin theories that, you know, um, it's not the fastest, the strongest, the fittest, the smartest, most intelligent of the species that survive. It's the one that's able to adapt to, as I added, ever changing environment, mm -hmm. that is the one that survives or thrives. So. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of talk, especially here in Australia about, you know, growth and there's all these growth events and um, and so I, I challenge people, what's the difference? How do you see the difference between growth and evolution? Mm, it's a very interesting question because I've never really considered that. But what I would say is this, I would agree with you 1000% about evolution mm. uh, and then I'll and then I will address growth. Evolution is an absolute imperative in business. I mean, if we stay the same as we were when we launched, we will stagnate and we will die. I mean, that is an absolute given. Yeah. So evolution is an imperative and we need to keep evolving because markets change, people change, the economy changes, things come at us that are beyond our control, such as COVID. And if we can't evolve, then it's not going to work. So what I always do is this, I start with what's your purpose? Like what is your overarching purpose? And when you introduced me, you said mine is about igniting human potential. Yeah. And my personal one, is, that's the collective hub, my personal one is to be an entrepreneur for entrepreneurs, living my life out loud, showing that anything's possible. Now that is as simple or as complex as my business gets. Yep. From under that, I really work between print, digital and events. Hmm. So that I have a, a focus, but I'm able to evolve and change and pivot and morph and adapt and evolve yep. everything else, evolve twice, three times, yep. depending on what the external factors are. So when COVID came, um, say a third of my business was speaking, which I'm grateful I get paid a lot of money for, yep. and live events. So that then knocked that out largely. So then I, you know, this year I've put out nearly 37 print products, I think, something like that journals and print products because i switched my mentality i was like okay let's amp this up and let's amp up the digital so i've been creating a lot of webinars podcasts all that kind of thing so i always say to people you've got to continue to evolve depending on where the markets are depending on all those external factors and there are way too many people who get very fixed on the product Yes. and a specific delivery mechanism like right. you know take kodak take a number of other businesses that have sadly not survived because they've not been able to think what's the feeling i want my customer to have you know it's less about the delivery mechanism it's more about the feeling and the overarching purpose and so i really believe evolution is an imperative in terms of growth growth is interesting i'd love to hear your take on all of this yeah. i mean I, I have a very simple one, I assure you. <laughs> oh, good. I should have started there. Growth for me is different because I think with evolution, sometimes we're evolving and then we may slow for a little while to kind of get the systems and processes and the operations and everything in place again before we have another growth spurt. I don't know. Yeah, I think they are quite different. I would, yeah, I don't believe we can continue to grow if we don't have a very strong foundation and strong fundamentals and so it's like evolve get the foundations right and then grow again evolve get the foundations right and then grow again that's probably what i would say and that's perfect because i agree with you 100 percent in that part which is uh -huh. it. well i agree with all of the things you said but like to me uh if you look at uh, evolution should be like the you know at least have the natural state and then you have growth phases through your evolution mm. because to me growth is just doing more for more like more of what you're doing for the people that you're doing it for and the markets that you're doing it for. And this is, you know, I found a lot in Australia here is that, you know, it's just this growth mindset, which I get because it's been booming economy and everything. So we just keep doing yeah. more and more, but we have a, and I think COVID has come along and shown a whole bunch of people that, well, guess what, actually, if you're not evolving, um, you could be yeah. growing into obscurity or irrelevance or something will always come along. And this is why I was so excited to chat with you, but something will and the work i do with my clients is the same thing something will always come along and challenge or disrupt or try to disrupt 
you, your business, your industry, or whatever it is. Now, could never have predicted it would have been a pandemic or anything like that. But the work that we do is is to challenge our clients in, in that space. And so the beauty of that is if you're, if evolution is the natural state of your business, then you're always prepared to adapt. You're always responding, not reacting. You're always proactive, things there. And then you can have growth phases within that, right? But if, if yeah. your point, if it's just growth, um, and most growth then is built on a business model and every business model has a shelf life. My question to anyone listening to this, has yours expired and you just don't know it yet? Mm. Um, or a lot of people found out that their business model had expired because it was thrust and forced upon them. But you talk about purpose, and I love that because like, I'm a purpose guy. Um, that when you have a very clear sense of purpose, why you do what you do, that won't change. But how you do it today and what you do can and will always change. Mm. If your business is only built on how and what you do, then you're in big trouble. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And what you just said is really important mm. as well. I mean, through COVID, a bit what I said about different, you know, revenue streams and being able to pendulate yeah. between them. If, I mean, we've seen sort of, you know, a lot of bricks and mortar businesses, hairdressing salons, um, you know, hospitality venues, weddings, you know, there's a whole lot of different people that were traditionally bricks and mortar. So if they were, as you say, continuing on a purely a growth strategy, well, they're going to go nowhere. But if they're evolving, then they're able to digitize their offering and think differently. And as so many of us have been this year, turbocharged into doing things in different ways, innovating. And I think, you know, if there's a silver lining to come out of this, it's really catapulted people who may have got comfortable with a particular way of doing things, a particular revenue stream. And they've now had to really... um, excel at that evolution piece as opposed to growth oh i love this conversation this is good <laughs> <laughs> yeah we could go on forever this is uh yeah. um, which would be a lot more to come out uh so taking that now i want to focus on the evolution yeah please reflect in and you may have already shared it in your story but if you want to expand a little bit when do you, you you think of your own personal evolution first and foremost where you've evolved as a human um, what, could you share with us, you know, what, what that moment or one of those moments would have been when you really saw yourself level up, if you wish? Yeah, this morning. <laughs> yeah. I, Dave, I'm leveling up all the time. And I believe to be, you know, a high functioning human at mm. our optimum, that we need to continue to push ourselves on a personal level. And when I say this morning, I mean, I've just taken on a fairly rigorous personal training um, yeah. <laughs> regime. And I've, I've actually got a personal trainer four mornings a week now. And then um, one morning a week, I do soft sand running as well. Um, I'm also doing spin classes. Like I've thrown in a lot of stuff. So just before we came onto this, I came from that session and um, which is why I'm looking slightly disheveled. (laughs) But I will say this, um, I believe in terms of personal evolution. So just a quick journey of that. I gave up drinking in um, on the 8th of November, 2004. So I just had 16 years of sobriety. Um, and what I would say to people around that is, you know, I've got more champagne in my fridge than anywhere. I'm the first to dance on a table at a party. But that was for me keeping myself small. I was using it as a crutch. So I would say to people, look at what you're doing to self-sabotage. So that was that. And I'm a perpetual seeker. So, I mean, I've been to India for month, uh, weeks at a time in head-to-toe purple robes. I've crawled through sweat lodges in um, Costa Rica nude. I've done, like, all, kind, I've all kinds of different, um, you know, seeking and learning and pushing myself. And I believe very much so in putting myself in counterintuitive situations that make mm. me feel uncomfortable. Great. And they're the things that bring me back to, okay, I can do this because I believe that everything starts with mindset. And mm. for anyone listening, you don't have to go to Costa Rica or India. It's just about go to a coffee shop that you don't normally go to in the morning, go to a different suburb and experience something else, walk a different way to work. Like I really believe in getting comfortable being uncomfortable you know every single day because that's the way I train myself to to manage now very big global businesses is I'm I'm always pushing myself on a personal level I'm always evolving I'm Mm. never letting myself get complacent and it's more so when business is great that I really dig in and do the work you know because I feel like 
it's very easy when business is like, oh my God, it's amazing. Life's so great. We can forget about continuing with the tools, rituals, routines, disciplines that actually give us that underpinning semblance of who we are and the ability to dig deep and be resilient when things come at us that are unexpected. Yeah, and that's that's so powerful. I mean, two things there for me, like uh, I have these little quirky quotes, they're called clearisms, okay? So they're just, <laughs> they're, um, so one of them is the only problem with the mindset is that it's a mindset. Um, so be careful what you set your mind onto, right? Because once we lock onto something, we can potentially lock out everything else, right? Um, and so, which is great. So I, I love mindfulness to me is such a powerful concept. Um, and the other one is when you talk about this constant evolution of putting yourself to being uh, uncomfortable. Um, and it's one of my buddy's favorite clarisms of mine. I don't know my friend has a favorite clarism, which is uh, be number one, but think and act like number two because number two always wants to be number one, right? So number two is willing to do the things that number one, because you talk oh, about- I when, love that. When you get complacent, right? So for me, it's like you, when you rest on your laurels, you get complacent, money's good, everything's flowing. And that's kind of what sort of happened a lot of times in some of the boom cycles. And like when money's flowing, there's no problems, right? What it does is just masks all the problems. Yeah, um, Ooh, I so just wrote that if, down, I love it. <laughs> okay, yeah, so if you're not, but you know, be number one, but think and act like number two, because number two always has that hunger, that drive, that desire to challenge, to question, to what do we need to do to, um, and it, you know, and we'll do the things that are uncomfortable to get to being number one. Yeah. You know, and not, not, not like it's a competition per se, but just the mindset to me in terms of thinking that. So those two things from personal evolution. And I love the fact that you have a personal trainer that one of the best things that I ever did two years ago was get a personal trainer. Um, shout out to Dale Nelson. Um, I was probably going to be in hospital, if not close to death, if it wasn't for him. So, uh, well, there's a story that I don't know about. So, yeah, yeah well, like I just, uh, two years ago, my whole life was tumbling down around me. My business was collapsing. I was lost. I was slightly off purpose. I was and you can see it expressing whatever's going on inside yourself finds a way to manifest itself on the outside. And physically I was, yeah, I was totally uh, in a mess. And he saw me, it was a, just a breakfast networking group that we were a part of. And he pulled me aside and he said, Dave, I'd like to train you. And I'm like, dude, I can't afford in my mind that stage. I couldn't afford to. And he says, no, I'm not going to charge you. I just want to train you. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. And, there you go. And, Someone else believing. Yeah. Yeah. And like, it was such yeah. a powerful thing for me and Dale, I, I've told him numerous times, like, uh, that you don't understand what you did for me, buddy. Like you, you don't understand how important that was to me in my life mm. uh, to, to, to know that you would do that. And yeah. So, but having that personal trainer to push you and because I think, you know, you tell me, like, we're, we're one of the first people who let ourselves get away with anything, right? It's easy to hold yeah. someone else to account, but it's very always challenging to hold yourself to account. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, the thing is during COVID, I bought a treadmill. I'm fortunate enough to have space in my home for it. And I thought like I was actually pretty fit and I was running and everything, but I just, I wasn't feeling great, you know, and I was like, I want to push myself to be my optimum. And I was getting a little depressed and just a little, you know, it wasn't quite myself. And since I've been training, I'm just like, I have so much energy. I feel so great. So that's the thing I always say to people like, it's easy again coming back to the money mindset mm. or the money mindfulness as you would say it's like um sometimes we think oh i can't afford that but actually can you afford not to and that right. investment for me you know whilst it's a significant monetary investment having a trainer four times a week the upshot for my business and my life overall because of my happiness my energy everything else is like it's paying for itself you know a hundred times over so oh correct yeah, like my, uh, you know, I was doing a lot of deep soul work on myself at the time, but then he helped me with my physical and then that plus that, and then the business just went gangbusters, mm. you know, go figure. Yeah, well done, well done you, I love this, so good, thanks for sharing that. Oh, no, I have to say, uh, to me, it's just such an important thing that people understand, like they, people can look at your business today, my business today, everything where we're at and go, oh, wow, look at these people, but they don't realize that, you know, A, we're human, that we've had these challenges before and, you know, that's where the, I think the, you know, the most of the teaching should be in, in, in anyone can teach you how the system and everything like that, but it's, it's all the human element, the, the journey that you have to go through, I think, which is really the most powerful part that how do we, how do we help people understand that? Um, it is. If, if you're not willing to share it, I'm not willing to share it, then we're really not helping. 
Yeah, and I'm happy to talk about any of that. I mean, you started off by saying, I mean, I literally, every time something happens to me, I share it on social or wherever because I want people to understand that it's not just, yes, life's amazing. Yes, life is what I've made it quite consciously and purposefully. But also, despite all of that, there is stuff that comes at me every day that's, you know, I didn't predict or it's really tricky stuff. And it's just that I've learned the tools to deal with it. It doesn't mean that difficult stuff isn't coming thick and fast all the time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And like when this, this the whole pandemic thing started, like because of the things I'd been through in the past, um, it gave me the tool set to be able to use to process and internalize and respond once again to what was happening. Like I was able to ask myself the questions, you know, you know, like what if I lost all my clients? Then what would I do? You know, if the pandemic, they all, you know, because it could have been a real reality. How would I handle that? What would I do? How long would I survive? Um, what could I do to rebuild? How could I bring more value back to the world? These are all questions I was able to ask myself because I've been through this process um, for other reasons in the past, but, and I was very calm about it, but I was able to think and, you know, invest in that, which to me was really, it gave me the tools to be able to do that. You just said something really important that I know I need to unpack that a little bit. So I have a, I have a little game I play with myself and I think this is really important. I think for any of us in business or life, sometimes it's easier to, we think it's easier to bury our head in the sand, pretend it's not happening. And I always future proof by going to like, what's the worst case scenario as yeah. you just did. Yeah. And then what I do is, because often we keep ourselves in fear fear of the unknown so I do exactly what you just did what if this happened but yeah. then I reverse engineer it very quickly yeah. and I go who is in my team or my inner circle is it my accountant my bookkeeper my CFO my lawyer um who would actually help me mitigate that risk so that it's actually a much more liberating way to live when you go what if this happens how am I going to deal with it before the thing happens yeah. whereas a lot of people would just be like ah, I'm not gonna it'll just fine <laughs> You know, it's much better to face it and then realize, ah, oh, actually, it's not as big or insurmountable as I thought. Yeah, and it's, um, I guess it's what I call having a productive attitude rather than just a positive attitude. Like yes. to me, productive attitude goes, oh, shit's real. It's happened. Now, how do I choose to interpret it and deal with it? Because in that situation, you talk about like worst case scenario, all, all I do is I'm, I say, can I make peace with my worst case scenario? If I can make peace with my worst case scenario, it's this this is if this is the worst case and I can I can handle that and I know what tools I have and things to, to deal with it, I can make peace with it, then I can go, okay, now what can I do and how can I move forward? And and I think that's one of you know, and, and I don't doubt that going forward into the future as my organization continues to scale and evolve that I'll have those moments again. I guarantee hundred percent I will because that's just life. But yeah. uh, once again, then I'll make peace with that worst case scenario and then then find my way to move forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So talk about that. Let's go to business evolution. So reflect on your business. I mean, you've had numerous evolutions of your business. Your business is built I think, as an evolution business. I think it's like, um, people say, yes, I am like the queen of pivots and evolutions. So, yeah. yeah. But I, and I think this would cool because I actually just co-authored a book called Pivot and Grow. Um, and, you know, I hate the word pivot to an extent, but I love the word. I'm sorry. I hate the word pivot, but I love when people pivot. But most people think, you know, especially through this whole situation of, of late is that, oh, I'm going to take everything I do and put it online and digitize it. Well, that's not really pivoting to me. That's digitizing your current distribution channel. That's just doing it digitally now. It's not really a significantly what I would call a pivot. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, so when you think about, you know, and that's for me, the whole concept of this book, Pivot and Grow was was around that was like, you know, pivot is you're doing something different in a different place for a different reason, for probably same or different people and then growing and then pivoting again and growing and pivoting because this is how we evolve to stay relevant in the hearts and minds of the people we choose to serve. Oh, I need to check out your book. That's not that well, all of your five books, but yeah, that sounds amazing. <laughs> so do you want me to talk about my yeah, business evolution? evolution? Yeah. So, and I would agree with you on the word pivot. So what I would go back to is this. I mean, I would say 2013, I really stepped into my purpose and got very clear, you know, on what I was here to do. And wow. I don't believe that will change until the day I die. Like I'm very resolute on being an entrepreneur for entrepreneurs, living my life at life, trying the enemies possible. Mm -hmm. However, the delivery mechanism will continue to evolve and change. And I'll have, you know, have already multiple businesses that sit under that banner as long as I'm delivering on you know what I believe my purpose to be then that is fine yeah. so one of the biggest changes was and you know came as a shock to many was that in 2018 April 2018 I decided to 
stop the print magazine. So after 54 issues, uh, I broke essentially the very thing that I started. Now that came as a shock to many because the print mag was in 37 countries. It was, you know, inching its way um, up the ladder in terms of all of our distribution channels. And it was doing very, very well. I mean, I had the likes of Sarah Jessica Parker, Ryan Gosling, Richard Branson, George Clooney, you name it, on the cover. Like, and, and it was doing remarkably well. What happened, unfortunately, was that I scaled too fast and I didn't have the right systems and processes in place to substantiate that growth and I didn't know what I didn't know. Um, I'm a great founder, like a very, I'm kind of a brilliant founder and visionary and brand architect. I kind of come up with ideas before they exist and I can see different ways of doing deals and all of that. I'm actually quite terrible really at being a CEO. <laughs> and, <laughs> and also the operational side, like systems processes, HR, IT, legal, finance, like I'm much better. I mean, absolutely. I know it and my data now I know intimately, but when I had that extreme growth, I took my eye off the ball and, um, you know, and handed over, I employed like a, a COO, a CFO, all the OOO, all the C-suite. Yeah, yeah, and I, and this is probably one of the most fundamental things in business. I took my eye off the ball of some of the really um, intrinsic data points and things that I needed to stay on top of. And I went from you know, a relatively small business of a few million dollar turnover to, you know, several million, yeah. like it, it, it scaled very, very quickly. And I wasn't ready for that growth. And so I had to close the print mag. And that was difficult, more so for my identity and ego. I think, you know, when you've had something very successful and there is something seemingly very sexy about having a global print mag and everyone wants to be your friend and everyone wants to be interviewed by you. Um, and then having to come out and say, actually, you know, I made a mistake. I'm the only one to blame. I can't substantiate this. I can't, you know, get the revenue to you know continue to make this go. We're hemorrhaging cash, you know, I'm spending every night on the bathroom floor crying, thinking, how am I going to do this every day? I'm fronting out for my CFO literally every day is saying we need another hundred grand. Everything seemed to be in increments of 100 grand plus. And when you start a business, everything's like, I don't know, a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars. And suddenly, and I just would be like, every day I'd front up thinking, what, how, how do we have such a leaky bucket? You know, I just dialed for dollars all day yesterday. I got on the phone and like sold my soul to try and get more partnerships, advertisers, sponsorships. And, and I got to a point where I was like, I can't do this. So I, I broke it. And for the first time in 17 years, I had to make people redundant. And, but I really had, and this is important, Dave, I think so many businesses, Ego, attachment, identity, whatever it is, they continue to forge forward thinking, I'll just make it work. And it probably could have continued in that way. But I just came back to, what am I here to do? How can I best serve? And as a leader and a CEO, a founder, I cannot do it. If I'm going home and crying on the bathroom floor and having to front up again every day, like it was exhausting and it wasn't a sustainable way to run a business. So, yeah, so I stopped the print mag and I did a cover of the print magazine. I don't know if you saw it, but it was an open letter to people saying, this is why. And the extraordinary thing about that is when you take people on the journey, again, coming back to that true vulnerability and authenticity, I actually, I owned my story. I made a half hour video. I said, this is why I'm doing it. And, you know, it was actually extraordinary overnight. Our, um, following and the love and everything else just catapulted to a new stratosphere and I was like wow people could have really hated me or been like you know because we had millions of people in our community and yeah. a lot of people who depended on us that I was like I can't continue to serve if I can't run a sustainable business so yeah. I broke it for a while and I tried to you know take some time to reimagine time and space <laughs> reimagine yep. what the next iteration looks like and yeah I'm kind of in that evolution at the moment and now I'm actually running a much bigger more globally focused business it's much more sustainable I actually have no full-time staff anymore everyone is um so I, I've changed everything that I do awesome. I got rid of my physical office in April 2018, I had a 600 square meter penthouse office in Surrey Hills, Sydney, it cost me yeah. 350 grand a year. And I decided that 
my team, I mean, many of them are still with me, but they're all freelance now. So mm -hmm. I decided if they want flexibility and freedom and they want to be able to pick their kids up from school at three or they work best at four in the morning or they want to go traveling and work from there, I changed my entire mindset from time in office and bum, bums on seats equates to productivity. And I looked at let's all have specific KPIs, key performance indicators, um, specific deliverables, and then let's focus the business on that as opposed to I can see you in the office, therefore you're being productive. And yeah. now we have a much more productive, efficient and profitable <laughs> business than we've ever had. And I can run much bigger teams globally that aren't dependent on geographic location. Like before yeah. it was like, have the best team in the world, you know, that's 10 or 20 kilometers radius from Surrey Hills. Now I have people working all over the world for me yeah. across different time zones. Yeah. Like in the world today, um, and two, two key things that, that I think people are starting to realize in business today, which you've just shared with your own business evolution is, um, it's, it's not about the hours you put in, it's what you put into the hours, right, as the old saying goes. Um, and, I, and I think that if we start focused more on outcomes and, you know, real productivity, um, you know, in, in, in a distributed working world, then it doesn't matter. Like, um, and what I love about what you're, from an organizational structure point of view, at least, is, is one thing I talk to leaders about is, you know, when we have an ego system of our business, which is I'm the boss, you're my subordinate, and we have to have all this, and you have all this, all of a sudden additional responsibility, and you talk about businesses being to be agile and flexible and nimble and fast. Well, when you're that, you get that cumbersome, it's harder to shift. So if you move from an ego system of your organization to an ecosystem of your organization, where um, you have it where, you know, like you have all the things that you still need, but they're either freelance or whatever it is, you have the ability to expand and contract. And as Bruce Lee would be like, be like water, you can take any shape when you need to and be strong and, and flow when you need to. And I think yeah. from an organizational point of view in the world today, like this is, if, if you can learn anything from that evolution, like that, those would be the two most powerful things. Why, I want to be like, if you're like, so you're, you're digital print magazine, everything like that, the business that you had, um, you would have had a big accounting team. And I'd be like, are you an accounting firm? And you're like, yeah. no. I said, well, why do you have an accounting team then? Are you an HR company? No, then why have a big HR department? You know, like do what you do best, outsource the rest. Well, the interesting thing about that yeah. is um, I still only have 34 full-time staff. So that's about three and a half million dollars yeah. fixed salaries. Yeah. But of my 34, only three of them, and this is the nuts thing, were actually writers or commissioning editors. So all of my writers were always freelance. So if we needed yeah. a great writer in Berlin on tech or fashion in New York, whatever, we had all these writers. Yeah. And also, and these people are all still with me. Kate, my bookkeeper, has been with me, I think, 14 years. She's always lived in the Blue Mountains. She was never a full-time staff member. Jody, who looks after all my logistics and distribution has yeah. been with me nine years, I think, never a full-time staff member. Kevin, who looked after IT, never a full-time staff member. So he's been with me 14 or 15 years. So I had, the weird thing is, the majority of my team have always been freelance. And suddenly I had a very lofty cost base of people who actually you know and also talk about evolution yeah you start as a print mag we go through digital and we become very rapidly a largely events based business we were doing four events a week in sydney alone and then you know wow. melbourne brisbane san francisco etc so those 34 people the evolution the skill sets changed so quickly so now i'm all about hiring specialists not generalists and as you say bring them in as and when you need them and then use tools like i mean we use you know, um, Google Docs, when we're working on yep. documents together, we have everything sitting in Dropbox. Mm. Um, we use Asana. So we have all of our yep. to-do lists. Like we have so many technology, you know, tools that support us now. Mm. And so really I can run multiple teams at once. And the yep. other thing is just quickly, when we're in the office, everyone would be excited if we were doing a cover for the magazine, like suddenly there's 34 people standing around the desk, but now it's only as good as I am in terms of systems and processes and people only need to know what they need to know. And they stay in their wheelhouse, they stay in their lane and they work on their particular project with the overarching vision that is shared by all. So for me, it's so much more productive, so much more efficient.
Yeah, no, absolutely. And, uh, and I love that. And the fact that you still have, everyone still is inspired by the picture that's greater than all of us combined, which is in the sense of the, the vision that you have. Um, yes. so, so let's roll into the future. What, when you think about the next three years or so, what, what are you looking at? What are you seeing? You know, what, what would you advise people listening to this to be mindful of, um, to look at, to embrace, to be wary of? Yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> the funny thing is, I would say when I was in the office, I was fairly technologically inept because I had so many people around me just like doing stuff for me, right? Yeah. And since I literally, you know, now my laptop is my window to the world. So mm. I have become a little bit, almost ironically, slightly a futurist in terms of I speak at a lot of tech conferences now <laughs> about like Microsoft and HP and a whole lot of other people around kind of the notion of a hybrid workplace. Um, so, you know, a combination of you know, working from home or working from wherever and working in an office and, you know, how do we combine the tools, the tech and the rituals, routines and disciplines. So I think we're going to have to all get used to a bit of a mashup of both and get comfortable mm. with both the technology and also so upskilling and also the disciplines associated with, you know, working from wherever. It's very different to going into an office where you have a certain purpose, you high five someone in the hallway, you're like morning and you know what you're kind of doing and suddenly we're left to our own devices. So I think in equal measure, you know, having some rigor around routines and understanding how you work best is really important. And the other thing is, and you touched on it, um, future-proofing businesses. So, and you really made a really good point before, it's not just about digitizing because I would say this, well, great, what happens if suddenly you know, the internet goes down or suddenly, yeah. I mean, and this happened, you know, TikTok in India, they just decided to close TikTok overnight. And, you know, there was one guy who had over 10 million TikTok followers. It was his primary source of revenue, his primary way of communicating with the world. And he woke up and there's no TikTok. So I'm also like, you know, don't just go, whoa, we need to future proof in terms of, you know, adapting and moving from bricks and mortar to to digitization, like actually create a holistic ecosystem where you have multiple revenue streams, you, you know, a, an absolutely precision focus about who you are, what your purpose is, what you're trying to do, what feeling you want to invoke within your customers across whichever platform they, um, you know, they uh, work, connect with you on, but really build out a robust business model that really has a number of different touch points, a number of different revenue streams so that you are able to, you know, just, you don't panic, you just switch on the, another one if something goes down. Because who's to say something digital or technology isn't going to just fail us suddenly? Yeah, absolutely. And I love, I love that precision focused uh, and like uh, some very powerful words, but this is what, uh, and I think that the funny thing about tick, TikTok is that guy was ticked off. But anyway, the... Uh, <laughs> totally. Yeah. I mean, we can talk about owned, earned and, um, you know, paid media channels as well. And there is something to be said for in this day and age, really owning as many channels as you can. So, you know, owning your database, because what happens if something like Instagram or Facebook, I mean, just, yeah. all, you know, suddenly closes and so much of our data, our database, our contacts are sitting within, you know, someone else's owned channel. I mean, that's that's an issue. Yeah, so this is what this one I talked about. Like, what if you could use social media no longer, but you yeah. lost all the the asset you'd built up in social media at the same time too? That would be could be devastating for a lot of people. Yeah, um, you know, uh, and so it's it's quite fascinating when you uh, look at what's coming down the pipeline and our ability to prepare for it, uh, to adapt. And I think, um, you know, the rigor and routines, I think is really important. Disciplines, the hybrid workplace. I think it was, it was like everyone worked from office, everyone worked from home, and we're going to find this somewhere in the middle. Um, yeah. yeah, where it'll be like either distributed working or hybrid workplace, um, coffee shops, uh, where you can pick people's brain for $4.50 um, an hour. And or <laughs> no. <laughs> um, all right, so one one last question for you, Lisa, and it's a random one. You have a get to choose a number from one to thirty-one, and I have a whole bunch of questions written down here that uh, you get to whatever number you pick. You just got to answer that question. I'm going with six. I don't know why. I got number six. six? Oh, okay, cool. This is a good one. I don't think I don't think we've ever asked this one. What is your favorite movie of all time, and why? Oh my god. Do you know I'm terrible at this question because 
oh, because I feel like I watch so many different things and it's and I get something from so many. Oh golly gosh. <laughs> What's something oh <laughs> I honestly can't even think on the spot. My favorite. What's your go-to movie? If you just like if you ever allowed yourself downtime and you were gonna invest two hours just to escape and you know, it could be the bucket of ice cream and a box of tissues kind of movie, or it could be just something totally scary. What would be the movie that you would just go, or that you would watch more than once? How's that? Might help you. Do you know, I think it depends on my mood. So, yep. it, um, oh gosh, there's so many. And so I watch so many documentaries as well, but it's probably something like, oh, I feel like I need to come back to this. It's something like super inspiring and uplifting. So it's something like, you know, I don't know, um, you know, Eminem's Eight Mile or something that's like really kind of hardcore and, you know. Hard <laughs> but it's a journey. Yeah, and then you're like, wow, you're so uplifted. Or um, there's so many, I mean, that's not one of my favorites. It's just what came to mind. But then, you know, at the other end of the spectrum, it's like Love Actually, which is like a no-brainer, feel-good ice cream, tea shoes, all that kind of thing. <laughs> But I watch a lot of um, documentaries and probably my almost favorite genre is, um, I love, I don't know why, musical documentaries. So anyone who's, you know, whether it's Beyonce or, you know, I just watched uh, Black Pink, Pink Black, this incredible young Korean girl band and what they went through to get to where they went like it's amazing so I love anything music documentary Lady Gaga like all of them I love them all <laughs> did you watch um Bohemian Rhapsody even though yes. it wasn't really a documentary but I thought yeah. it was fascinating love that. best uh movies uh, like uh, of, uh, looking at those sorts of people oh queen was... yeah incredible i mean gosh what's the one lady gaga and that was uh what was bradley it? cooper the one the the the, the star was born again the... oh how good was that yeah. yes so, i Tell love something that. girl yeah oh, you Sing. Oh. <laughs> I miss the singing, Jane. Unfortunately. Yes, I'm here. I'm really actually Elvis is my only thing I can really do well. But the uh, <laughs> all right. So Lisa, thank you so much. Um, if people want to get hold of you, what's the best place? Uh, please, like where they, if they want to buy all your books, they want to uh, whatever it is. What's the best way to to oh, find out more you. about Lisa Messenger? Well, if they jump onto collectivehub.com, all our books and journals and things are there. But um, also if they just follow Lisa Messenger or Collective Hub across any social media channel, then you will find me there. <laughs> awesome. Uh, Lisa, thank you so much uh, for joining us on the Evolution of Business show. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you here on the show. You know, you and I could probably have kept talking for hours about, and there's probably a whole bunch of stuff we haven't covered. Uh, you know, that was like, Wow, there's just so much uh, to unpack here. Uh, it, was, it was quite amazing. And thank you for sharing your journey with us. Um, and it's just been great. And really look forward to watching this next evolution uh, of Lisa Messenger and the Collective Hub and, and to see where it goes. And uh, it's just been exciting so far. And I can't wait to see what happens next. Amazing. Thank you, Dave. You're actually an extraordinary interviewer. And I agree. I feel like oh. we could have like tugged at many, many threads and created like two hours of content just from each of those. So thank you so much well, for having me. I really my appreciate pleasure. it. My pleasure. Maybe we should get on a live stream and just do a whole thing uh, in the future. We'll see. <laughs> Amazing. Thank, thank you. you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.